let's face it, it's pretty daunting. It's pretty scary. How can we navigate the climate crisis with any degree of optimism? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. As an American, I have the right to everything right away. Personally, I have a disease which I don't like, and damn it, I want it all better right now. But the reality is it doesn't seem to be working that way. At least environmentally, the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket with astoundingly increasing speed each passing day. So what's the point? How can we not be eternally depressive? and just plain hopeless. The name of the new nonfiction book we're going to discuss today, written by today's guest Andrew Boyd, is I Want a Better Catastrophe. And it's subtitled Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. It's been called an existential manual for tragic optimists, can-do pessimists, and compassionate doomers. I guess that's all of us, anybody that's awake at all. And with good reason, <laughs> we are recognized as, frankly, a rather dour bunch. Maybe there's something that can be done about that, both in terms of our attitude and what we can actually do to make a difference. Even though it's pretty much universally understood to be just too late, Andrew Boyd is an author, humorist, activist, and CEO, that means Chief Existential Officer of the Climate Clock, a global campaign that blends art, science, and grassroots organizing to get the world to act in time. He also co-created the grief storytelling ritual, The Climate Ribbon, and led the 2000s-era satirical campaign Billionaires for Bush, which, in my opinion, was brilliant, communicating clearly and quickly words not even being necessary. That was great stuff. Thank you for that, mm. Andrew. And your previous books include Beautiful Trouble, A Toolbox for Revolution, Daily Afflictions, The Agony of Being Connected to Everything in the Universe, and Life's Little Deconstruction Book, Self-Help for the Post-Hip. His lifelong ambition is to unite the utmost seriousness of question with the utmost lightness of form. This book is a quest to learn how to live with the impossible news of our climate doom. What could be more fun? Andrew Boyd, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. That's quite an introduction, uh, Bert. It's a pleasure to be uh, on your show. Thank you so much. There are a lot of books on the climate crisis, a lot of them, yeah. and the environment. How did you go about creating it? Tell us your journey, the places and events. And yeah. what, what, what's the uniqueness of this? That's a fair, that's a great, yeah, great, great way to start. Um, well, it was a long journey. Um, you know, I've been a lifelong activist uh, and uh, the last, uh, most of the last decade focused on environmental and climate issues. And I had a, some number of years ago, uh, seven, eight years ago, I had a bit of a crisis uh, given a number of the things that you're laying out here just in the last few minutes, uh, one could understand why. <laughs> And I, so I went through my own sort of, you know, crisis of faith, crisis of hope, and went in search of a, um, given the relentlessness of our, you know, unfolding ecological crisis, what kinds of, I don't know, spiritual traditions, uh, understandings or re-understandings of, of hope, and I'm, I'm maybe in search of a more robust kind of hope, uh, and, 
the answer to the question, what is still worth doing, uh, you know, given that we're missing some of our targets. uh, Mm. And, you know, and so I sort of went off in search of that and both was both like looking inwards, uh, doing a lot of reading, uh, being a kind of cultural scout, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. and then also talking, uh, tracking down some very wise uh, climate uh, environmental uh, thought leaders uh, who had, you know, realized how dire a situation we were in, you know, uh, before I had, you know, years before I had, and we're still operating in an ethical, hopeful, engaged uh, eyes on the, pro- you know, what can, what, how can I bring my best self? Uh, how can I be honest about our situation and still my bring, bring my best self and make the most difference I can uh, and had found ways to do so. And I interviewed them and wove all their wisdom into the book. And in my uh, sort of my own tradition of a kind of wise, uh, you know, sort of crazy wisdom tradition or uh, or gallows humor, uh-huh. uh, dark humor tradition sort of brought that perspective to bear. So I would say it's the book is, uh, you know, an offering, a service uh, to those who want to live in the cl- climate truth, uh, mm. but who can are looking for a way to do that uh, that is grounded, ethical, uh, and engaged. Uh, and 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 you know especially those you know those for whom feel they need a dose of humor to do that. Yeah, it's it's boy being engaged. It's so much easier for you know people if if they you know come on something that's really really challenging and hard and looks frankly kind of impossible. You just tune it out, give up. You don't stay engaged. But what does that do? What does that do? So. You've been engaged for a long time. I mean, I know I came from a, come a, from a background of the, the late 60s when we had tremendous mm-hmm. optimism for the future. We really yes. did. We did. Um, tell us about your your journey. You, you t- spoke to some interesting people who had some wisdom uh, to share with you that perhaps other people can use as well. Tell us about that journey to places and events, please. Absolutely. Um, it was yeah a bit of a trek uh, all over the country. Uh-huh. Um and from you know east uh, center of the country and uh, the west, um, and I talked with uh, somebody who now lives uh, in a neighboring state to New Hampshire in, in Maine, uh, but who grew up in Appalachia and uh, did a lot of his activism in uh, in Utah and ended up at the Divinity School in Harvard and now is a farmer uh, and climate organizer in Maine. His name is Tim De Christopher, uh, a celebrated climate activist and spoke with him in the midst of a, of a rainstorm in, in, in New York city. Um, and he shared, uh, you know, everyone, these, and and these full interviews are a very, you know, uh, the best of the best of the best of the, of the interview we had, uh, transcript is in, in the book. So there's eight interviews in the book, along with, uh, this, this journey that I'm on as long with a lot of, uh, thought and heart experiments and, and, uh, you know, philosophical, uh, quick takes, uh, you know, that, that's sort of woven into the book. So Tim, Tim had any number of things to share with me. One of the more memorable was his sort of reframing of hope. You know, we think of hope as a kind of a probability of something kind of happening or, or you know, the way author Rebecca mm-hmm. Solnit will describe a passive kind of hope as sitting on the couch, clutching your lottery ticket, you know, and hoping it's all going to work out, you know. Um, <laughs> and that's a... <laughs> that's one approach. You know, yeah, go ahead. That's one approach, right. And that's a very passive, you know, non-active, it's not on me um, you know, kind of approach, but the, 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 lear- some of the learnings, some I already understood and some 
of this learning is we're deep in that hope is a practice. Hope is an ethos. Hope is a verb. Hope is mm. something that you do. Hope is something that you, um, you know, that's the hope, you know, as, as Grace Paley would say, you know, hope shows up as action or it doesn't exist at all. You know, mm-hmm. um, mm. it's not something other people, you know, it's not something other people do. Um, hope is a sailor caught in a storm and you need to steer your boat. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, waiting for somebody else to do it. So he's, he, he understood hope. And this is the phrase that really, one of the things that struck me along the way was hope is, um, a w- our will, uh, the will to stay true to our values in the face of difficulty. So for, for Tim to Christopher, that was sort of how he understood hope. And that was, that felt like a very, hmm. I don't know, that was just a bit of a revelation. It was a very resilient, very robust, very um, action-oriented, engaged kind of hope without the promise, you know, uh, that somehow, you know, hmm. re- reality has promised you a rose garden. No, it hasn't. Right. But it's still up to you to be to be um, honest and uh, do all that you can, uh, you know, without deluding yourself or without expecting reality to deliver something that it never it never it never agreed to give you you know yeah so yeah yeah so it, that was one one little example interesting it, it, that's a quite a picture you know being a boat out on a choppy sea you can you know give it thoughts and prayers or try to steer it and adjust the sails you know do what you can and here we are in some rough seas and as as regular listeners know i i I'm kind of a history buff. I read a lot of history, Western history. One theme that's consistent is a prideful belief in man's dominion over nature. We are here mm. to conquer nature. <clears throat> that approach has obviously caused, well, frankly, a lot of deaths and wars to conquer lands for the dominant culture. Mm. There's been a few problems with that, too. What what cultures have, have you drawn on for wisdom that, that may be more applicable to our times and challenges. What do they offer that we need so desperately? Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I spoke with amongst the the eight leading climate uh, thought leaders that I spoke with included Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a, has a very interesting history and a very interesting approach. Uh, she's a, is a mixed uh, Irish immigrant, uh, indigenous. Uh, ancestry herself uh, is a scientist, uh, but is also a, what she described to me is she's a, I said, when did you become a botanist? And she said, I, I, I was born a botanist. Uh-huh. You know, and that's sort of speaking to her indigenous tradition of uh, just, you know, that's the wisdom that's passed on about a relationship to, particularly for her, uh, to uh, the, the plant, plants, as you know, let's, and she, uh, she talks about the, you know, understanding ourselves not as takers which is i think sort of the paradigm you're describing you know uh mm-hmm, nature mm-hmm. as property all conquering mm-hmm. uh you know divide it all up uh, nature as just something to be uh, a product waiting for us to or you know a resource waiting for us to turn into a product and then a and then a garbage can for us to sort of dump our waste <laughs> on. but rather you know and that's bad that's a, you know as a taker and we oh, kind and we yes. tend to think even if we have a critique of it, we tend there's a way in which we can be really cynical and decide that's all that we are capable of. That that's our essential human nature to be a taker, you know, and a destroyer of worlds. 
And then we sort of like assume that, you know, oh, well, that's how we're just, it's just going to play itself out and we're doomed, you know? Wow. And she's saying, no, we need to, and she had a very beautiful word. She, we need to restory, restory that. So hmm. it's like restore, but it's restory. So I, I felt that was just a very interesting word that was introduced to me along the way. We need to restory that. Actually, for the vast majority, we, you know, the species has been around for 6 million years. And yeah, maybe for the last 500 or the last 2000 or even the last 10 or 12,000 years, we may have been very much takers. But most, most of most, many humans still, and for the vast, you know, 90, 97, 98, 99% of our history as a species, we've worked, we've lived in a, a reciprocal relationship with the natural world, you know, and she, she sort of, un, you know, writes whole uh, books and has, you know, a whole approach uh, sort of un, unpacking that. And one, one of her very interesting ways she phrases that is, you know, plants are our elders, which I, you know, first of all, there are elders. Like, uh -huh. it's just an interesting way. We think of elders as having wisdom in our communities and, you know, that we should look to them for, for certain understandings that we are, you know, that are younger, young, those, those of us younger uh, could do well to uh, listen to. But then, you know, she reframes that as, a, as our plants are our elders. They've had billions of years to figure some things out, you know, and plants are our teachers. And so she, you know, her most well-known book is New York bestseller list is, you know, braiding sweetgrass. And she will unpack uh, indigenous traditions alongside uh, how how the ecosystems operate, plant you know particularly plant based ecosystems operate, and draw lessons that we could uh, uh, you know as a, as a society you know uh, could learn from anyway. And um, uh, you know she says, look, it's a totally solar powered economy, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. plant life. They figured out how to do it, and look, you know, so so that's a just uh, just for example. Um, so let's not think of ourselves as takers let's think of ourselves as partners and we've been good partners for most of our history as a species we can it's still there for us uh it's still within us uh and it's still there's many examples in the world you know indigenous people all across the world and other uh you know farmers and and others uh who are going through an ecological awakening who are learning to be in good harmony with the natural world over the long term, you know, think seven generations mm -hmm. uh, down the line, kind of thing. So, so those are some traditions we can grow upon, and many people are. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, let's face it. I mean, one of the aspects of this catastrophe is we're shaken up. It's like, whoa, what yeah. the heck is going on? We've been doing it this way for you know 150 years or so, and it doesn't work anymore, and it's a serious threat. And okay, so once things are shaken up, uh, and and you know the old way is really questioned. Uh, it's great to find something that can, you know, answer that and and deal with that. Uh, and I I certainly find you know it makes me think of the European settlers of of what's now America. You know, and calling the people who lived here in harmony with the earth. I must add, mm. Uh, mm. as as savages that need to be conquered. And you know, they had schools where they beat the right. Indian yeah. out of the Indian uh, to to replace their uh, yeah. culture with with civilization. Mm, mm, mm. And there's so much to learn. So much to learn. And it's kind of yeah. reassuring, I think, to to think that. You know, okay, uh, our way of just being takers 
it, it ain't working. Uh, we got to try something else, and uh, we can we can learn a lot. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. This show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about keeping our planet alive here. Our guest today is Andrew Boyd, who's got a new book out that we're discussing called I Want a Better Catastrophe. And the subtitle is Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. Interesting stuff. And, you know, plants, when I look at plants, it amazes me how, you know, the winter comes, the ground is, is rock solid like cement, plants still come up and they yeah. provide oxygen. It's astounding and it's it's inspiring. And there are, my, my dad has uh, used to say, there are none so blind as those who will not see. Uh, there mm. are people who put blinders on and lock them on. They reject mm. science and insist that their religion, their beliefs are all they need. They lock out anything that conflicts with their beliefs. Science? Who needs it? There are a lot of people, as you know, who fit this description, and it's really dangerous. You're not a scientist, but in addition to what you've learned uh, from from people uh, like uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, what have you learned from scientists about what happens when we exceed the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming limit, as cited in the Paris Climate Accord? Uh, paint us a picture of that future, please. <sighs> Going well, from optimism uh, to a little bit of... <laughs> yeah, no, it's... it's uh, the predictions are dire uh, by the scientists. You know, they, we've, we've served for, for scientific reasons, for reasons of justice. Uh, we have identified scientists and, uh, for example, island, the island nations of the Pacific who will go, you know, who will be wiped off the map uh, once sea, because of sea level rise, uh, estimated that you know 1.5 will will kick that in. So for reasons of justice and for reasons of science, uh, the world, uh, as you said in the Paris Climate Accords, uh, committed itself. Every every country signed the treaty uh, to do all within our powers to remain below 1.5 degrees centigrade warming. So that is a that is a red line uh, that's been drawn uh, that we cross at our at our peril uh, to you know the the whatever the uh, stability of our climate, uh, the integrity of our ecosystem, you know, the entire planet, and uh, you know, to avoid uh, great suffering to uh, our people. Mm. So uh, we could we could doom scroll some of that suffering, uh, and I don't like to you know spend too much time on that because I think people have already read it and it's already has had its sort of brutalizing, numbing effect. Yeah. Just yeah. you know, uh, Arctic ice cap melting, coral reefs bleaching. Um, you know, ocean acidifying and uh, really threatening uh, sensitive marine life, uh, habitats uh, you know, shrinking and being, you know, drought and floods and uh, the instability of weather, um, you know, the monsoons not coming when they are expected and, you know, farmers not being able to adapt, uh, sort of wrecking uh, habitats and uh, the possibility of, of certain, you know, uh, agricultural regions continuing to be productive. So potentially, uh, you know, mass starvation, dislocation, you know, uh, you could go into the, you know, depends on the numbers and depends on the scenario, but, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of climate, you know, forced migration, climate refugees, the list, you know, goes oh, on. And we, we, yeah. yeah, it's huge. And it, you know, you could say, well, after 1.5, it's this two, 2.5, three, 
you know, and, and these things, there's a lag time to all this, uh-huh. which is what is the pernicious structure of the climate crisis. You know, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. OK, boom, we're in a war. There's an immediate threat, mass, you know, economic mobilization across the entire economy, the entire society. We ban the production of of of, of you know. Uh, passenger cars, you know, after four days after Pearl Harbor and go into a total war mode, you know, there's a very immediate threat and boom, uh, we're, we're approaching it with an emergency mindset. Uh, with climate, it's, uh, first of all, it's a slow motion. There's this lag. So we're not, we're only realizing, you know, and, and then there's a, this concerted, you know, that slows us down. And then there's a concerted effort by, uh, led by the fossil fuel industry, uh, and they've captured a piece of the political system mm. to, you know, cast doubt on the scientific consensus. You know, ninety-seven plus percent scientific consensus that that uh, oh, yeah. you know greenhouse gas gases are causing this warming, and the warming is having these effects, and humans and and fossil fuels are powering it, right? And then preventing alternatives, uh, blocking initiatives. Uh, you know, using the cultural divide in this country uh, to, you know, to, you, you know, sort of somehow, yes, we can disagree about abortion, but we shouldn't be disagreeing about the basic science that is threatening our planet and, and the possibilities of our children having a <laughs> having a livable world. Like, why is that something that we would debate culturally? Really? You know, oh, um, yes. so using that to to divide opinion so that we're not able to approach this in a powerful, united way and and go into an emergency mobilization and address this existential threat and not just address this threat, but actually, you know, build a, uh, a, a, a more, you know, make this energy transition, which has so many benefits independent yes. of where you land on the climate science. It makes our communities safer. Uh, it makes the air cleaner, the water cleaner, um, uh, you know, uh, et cetera. So like, um, yeah. So any case, uh, let's, so, yeah, it works. Uh, yeah, we can, we, we, we can learn from it. And, you know, from the indigenous uh, culture that was here in what's now America, there's a heck of a lot to learn. They lived sure. with the earth, and it can be beneficial to us now. And and you're right, since it's it's happening slowly as opposed to Pearl Harbor, you know, even yeah. though it's... So it's a, yeah, so, it's, so, we, so we, we're seeing it. We're, you know, it's like now we're finally, you know, people are kind of, yeah. you know, people who haven't been paying attention or people have been you know, sort of doubting it uh, are are coming around more and more. And obviously the younger generation is seeing it more clearly. They have much more at stake. They're going to live through a lot more of this century than we are, uh, us us older folks. Um, And, um, but yeah, but, but there's some interesting, you know, there's a, there's a very funny, uh, and this shows up in the book, there's a sort of funny perspective, which, you know, around this sort of denial of the science versus the promise of making this transition to cleaner energy. It's like, there's, you know, like a lecture hall and there are people, you know, up at the front of the lecture listing all the all the all the benefits of making this transition, you know, like uh, safer communities, cleaner air, cleaner water, et cetera, et cetera, uh, cheaper and more decentralized control of energy as well. Da, 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 da. And there's a guy, a grumpy guy in the back going, well, but what if it's all a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Right. You know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's like, come on, guys, there's every reason uh, from across many political spectrums to do this. Um, and I'll just share a share a story I learned sure. along the way. I was yeah, on yeah. A, on a, on a, from the neighboring state of your, to New Hampshire in Maine when I was on a book tour, and I've been on book tour all all over the country. Just just finished about a week ago, and um, I was in Portland, Maine. Uh, beautiful snowfall. Went snowshoeing in the in the backwoods outside of Portland oh, uh, nice. with a friend who who grew up who grew up in Maine, and it was sort of putting me up in his house. And um, I heard a story just from the small town. I forget the name of it, but out just outside of Portland where. Um, 
this one community member who'd gone to Dartmouth and really understood climate science. And he came back to his town and he was like, all right, but this is, there's a split here in this town about whether climate science is real. And, you know, it's all caught up in the, in the uh, red blue divide in this country and everything, but, but it's very important. We should still get some solar. So, so he plots this, he, he, there's a brownfield, a contaminated brownfield. And he's like, that would be a perfect place for a solar array. And he goes into the city council and he pitches, uh, let's, clean up this brownfield, let's remediate this brownfield, and then let's put a huge solar array in this field uh, that can power, give energy to the whole town. It'll be cheaper. We'll have control over it. You know, good New England, you know, town hall kind of sure. democratic, uh, distributed, you know, decentralized yep. control over our own, you know, energy sovereignty, uh, they call it. Mm. And uh, it'll be very good for our town. And he doesn't mention climate change once ah. during this pitch, his pitch to the city supervisors. It passes unanimously. And now the city is powered by uh, cheaper and locally controlled oh. uh, solar power and no one had to sort of and i'm not i'm not yeah nobody had to come to a come to jesus if you will <laughs> used in an ironic way yeah. agreement about um you know whether climate change is real whether humans are doing it uh who should be punished who's to blame or any of that kind of stuff though i think that conversation is extremely important if we're going to be able to do more larger strategic things but for this town they were able to um take a really really important step forward that benefited the town economically and in just in terms of the health and safety uh, for kids and for everyone without having to have a grand agreement about, um, uh, you know, uh, cosmology, <laughs> you know, or a grand um, winning somebody over to one side, sure. of this, uh, you know, this, this cultural divide. So that's just just sort of worth noting. Um, there's a lots and lots of solutions to be had, and uh, we can do it with un, un, unlikely, some of it with unlikely allies. And uh, oh, this yes. new, you know, the new, yeah, the new package, you know, that the Inflation Reduction Act that finally got through Congress after uh -huh. 36 years of inaction, you know, 36 years since the first congressional testimony was given about the climate crisis 36 years ago. And the Senate finally last year passed a landmark legislation to address it. It's utterly insufficient, but it is massively uh, a massive step forward nonetheless. And that's one of the contradictions that we're in, you know, deeply insufficient and yet a huge uh, quantum leap in the right direction uh yes. just to take an example and thus 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 the phrase better catastrophe you know always comes up in these sort of we're stuck in this in this um uh place where we are in for some kind of catastrophe as we the, 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 you know the powers that be uh didn't allow us to make the changes we needed to 20 you know 40 30 right. 20 years ago so we're we're locked in for some degree of catastrophe how do we make that the least degree of catastrophe and how do we transit make the transitions that we need you know, from dirty energy to clean energy uh in a way that uh, creates a better society and, and does it in a just in a just way and reaps the potential benefits of this transition so how do we get a better catastrophe it's a bit oxymoronic it's a bit ironic it's a bit dark you know darkly humorous but it is very accurate description of our of what we need to set our sights on um, so that that's yeah, that's uh, no, the framing of the book. Mm -hmm. No, no question. There are, you know, possibilities there, and I, you know, that that local answer. You know, not just taking on something bad, but doing something good. That you, you talked about. You know, building that uh, that solar array uh, yeah. that that benefits everybody. And of course, you know, there are political forces that uh, have money invested. Uh, you know, the fossil fuel industry doesn't exactly help here they you know but and that's a you know we have to deal with that 
And when you talk about you know a better catastrophe, uh, as as people who listen regularly know, I'm I'm obsessed with the First World War. There's a book uh, mm. called uh, A Mad Catastrophe by historian Jeffrey mm. Warrow, and the fact is, yes, World War One was a terrible catastrophe, but you know what? It could have stopped earlier. Could have been less yeah. of a bad catastrophe. There were options along the way. We've had. I mean, the first Earth Day was over 50 years ago. Uh, J- yeah. Jimmy Carter in the White House put some solar stuff on the roof way back in right. the seventies, and, Ro- and Ronald Reagan took it off, and pretty much from from jump. Uh, and those solar panels that were on the White House are like coveted uh, items, you know, worth worth I don't know thousands, whatever, tens of thousands of dollars, and uh. they're just these these historic. Um, you know, like like rare baseball cards, you know. <laughs> um, well, yeah, people could find those baseball cards. It's true uh, for a Mickey Mantle card. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, there are so many challenges. And, and the, the attitude that, that comes across in this book uh, that you wrote, I, I think is, you know, it, it's got some kind of, uh, dare I say, optimism. You know, as with so many challenges, it's... It's actually an opportunity for humankind, and and as you say, it's not so much a problem, but it's a predicament, and that implies a certain optimism. Tell us about what you mean by that. That's one of the important things I learned uh, along the journey of writing this book. Uh, again, is that we're, and it was part of the sort of initial, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to fix this in the way we have maybe fixed other things, you know, like, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, we've expanded the franchise in the U S you know, uh, mm-hmm. we fixed some of the original problems in our constitution, you know, through amendments, whatever we've, we, we passed marriage equality, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, we've raised the minimum wage. We established an eight hour working day, you know, these kind of things, these are sort of victories, you know, and you set your sights on those victories and you gather your people, you make your case, uh, you map out a strategy and you persist. It's not, it looks daunting. It may look impossible, but you persist and sometimes you win or half win with, with the climate crisis. It's, um, you know, it's a crisis of our, as you've sort of pointed out, I think, and, and earlier in this interview, it's a crisis across the board of our whole civilization, of our whole way of operating, you know, of our, our whole sort of the stories that we tell uh, that, uh, you know, we can have infinite growth on a finite planet. Sure. Um, you know, that nature is, is just a, uh, something we can just kind of have our way with as opposed to figure out how to, you know, dance respectful, respectfully with, you know, mm. um, mm-hmm. kind of the realization that we're not, this isn't a, a sort of a simple linear uh, containable problem. We're in a predicament, right. right? We are, we are embedded in the system that we, you know, we need to uh, at the moment still burn some fossil fuels to get to our jobs, say, you know, kind of thing. Right. Uh-huh. So we're, we're, we're participating in a system that we know, uh, is is deeply flawed and is threatening uh, life as we know it, uh, and we need to make that transition. But we're sort of standing in it. You know, we're like we have to be building. You know, fixing the plane as we fly it. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Swapping out engines <laughs> as we fly it. It's it's a it's complex, and we've passed certain points. Uh, you know, we missed certain targets. Like so, thus thus we're in for some degree of catastrophe, and we have to find a way to adapt to it, become resilient. You know. Uh, mitigate it, reduce it. But so we're not fixing things here, right? We're in a predicament where we can remedy, we can navigate, we can reckon with. Make adjustments along the way. Yeah, yeah make adjustments, adjustments. We can't fix in a way where we, we 
we remove the problem. We solve the no. problem and move on, right? We're going to be in this for generations. That's, um, for, that's for sure. And I'm reminded yeah. I, 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 of, of the movie uh, Apollo 13, where they had a bit of a problem. <laughs> and they right. took what they had, and they kind of jerry-rigged it together with uh, duct tape or whatever. Uh, yeah. Did it really fix it? No, but they lived. <laughs> Right. They were able to land, right, like Tom Hanks and his, yes. you know, very all-American daring-do and ingenuity and, and MacGyvering <laughs> um, and, and, and deep, deep science, you know, deep, deep scientific knowledge, right? They, uh, they were, these were the best of the best, what are they called? The, the best. Best uh, and the brightest? I don't know. Best and the brightest kind of thing. Yeah, something like that. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. So and we, they we were can... able to land, they were able to land the sort of rickety, uh, the yes. rickety, uh, you know, module or whatever it was called back then a spaceship let's call it the, the metaphor of infinite growth of like just like we're just like on an upward we're in an upward trajectory forever right that's yeah. not that's no longer viable but also yeah. then the met, the other metaphor that kicks in is is sort of just the opposite which is we're on a like we're locked on right. a, we're a train locked on a on a track and we're heading we're speeding off a cliff and it just and that's not an accurate metaphor either. It's not like a total doom, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's nothing we can do. So like people like to fall into these binaries. Just it, yeah. it, it's, it's sort of a simplified way or an ideological way of thinking, but it's actually something in between. One of the, uh -huh. the, the most respected uh, climate scientists uh, in the US, uh, Dr. Mann, uh, who you know led the NASA climate program for decades and gave this very early testimony to Congress, and et cetera. Yeah. It's been a, just been a, um, a uh, very powerful voice on all this. He says it's not. It's not a cliff. It's not a train going over a cliff. It's a. It's a. Uh, we're on a highway, and if we can't get off at the exit, you know, we're just trying to get off at the exit, right? If we can't get off at the 1.5 degrees centigrade warming exit, like stay under that level of of of, of planetary warming, um, then we when we, if we miss that exit and we are kind of speeding past it, uh, alas, or about to, then let's get off at the 2.0. Uh -huh. You know, let's uh -huh. let's every fraction of a degree that we can. Uh -huh. uh, keep a global warming under it will matter uh, like have extraordinarily vast consequences for ourselves and for our children and for the future of the planet and all like 10 you know millions arguably uh, or yeah. a million yeah. uh, innocent innocent species who've done nothing to cause this crisis and yet might get wiped <sighs> off out of history yes um uh, way prematurely uh, because of our irresponsibility and it's not like, hey, the asteroid is coming. And, you know, what's, you know, the dinosaurs, you know, the dinosaurs couldn't know that the asteroid is coming, but we know this is happening. You know, we, and we know some of the things we can do to, 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 to um, make this less worse. Uh, and we're not less doing worse, it yes. at the level that we need, you know? So it's like, yeah. And it, and it can, it can so, be yeah, done. So, mm -hmm. And, and I'm reminded of the, uh, the interesting film don't look up mm, we could right. have done a few things for those who may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're talking about keeping our planet alive yes maybe there is still time our guest is andrew boyd who's got a new book out i want a better catastrophe and that's a good title uh and the subtitle is navigating the climate crisis with grief hope and gallows humor you know 50 years ago when the first earth day no question there was a lot of time. And we're just like, yeah, sure, we'll be, yeah, okay. But now, I get the sense, as you're saying, okay, we missed that exit. There's another exit up ahead. So perhaps there's still a little, well, maybe there, there's some time. And and it's uh, there's some possibilities here. And you, you cite conservation biologist Guy McPherson, 
or in French, Guy McPherson, uh, who does believe will be extinct in not too long. But in the meantime, he suggests something that, well, Abby Hoffman also suggested, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that's got a little bit of politics in there. What, what does that, why, how does that sound like a reasonable strategy? What's, the, what's that going to accomplish? Tell us about that, please. Uh, sure. Um, so just to, you know, about the, the time that we have left, you yes. know, the way, sure, please. you know, I think it's important. No, 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 that's great. But I think, I think it's sort of the way we, I, I think people feel, oh, it's, it's too late. It's all over. Right. Right. And so therefore right. they check out and it's a very, in a sense, it's very, it's very dark. It's very doomy. Yeah. yeah. It's not, it's not pleasant, but, but it is, there is something where there's some emotional safety in just sort of giving up, you know, like an emotional safety and like, Hey, there's, I, there's nothing for me to do here. It's all over. I can just, um, you know, either pull more, uh, you know, carbon poisons out of the, out of the earth and burn it, you know, make things even worse so that I can make a buck along the way because, Hey, who cares? It's all over. Or like, just like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take it easy. You know, I'm just going to chill out. Right. Like I don't have any responsibility. It's all over. So there's a, there's a way in which it's too late is a sort of headset that people can get into and it allows them to check out which feels yes. comfortable maybe to people but the point is there's a the the the, the book tries to uh, be honest and identify where where what we do still matters and show us how to how to be as much a part of the solution as we can be right so it's like yes it's too late in a certain way we mm. we're, we've missed or we're missing certain targets you know uh, the you know, the, the, the coral reef is bleaching, but it is not, you know, but right. And so we, you know, there's damage that we are doing to the planet and some of it we can't undo. Okay. So boom, let's be honest about that. Let's not pretend it's better than it is, but it's right. not, it's also never too late, right? It's not too late to, uh, to have a better catastrophe, alas, right? Yes. It is too late to, to have no catastrophe, yeah, right. but it's not too late to have the least worst catastrophe. Uh, it's also, you know, never too late, just at any time, it, it, regardless of what we're talking, it's never too late to be kind. It's never too late um, to bring our best selves uh, to this. It's never too late to be in solidarity, whether that's with uh, uh, neighbors or people across the world who are getting hit by this, you know, first and worst, you know, than we are, uh, or never too late, um, you know, to to take to take care of our communities as 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 these uh, impacts start to uh, un, un, unroll. Um, so it's, you know, it's, and it's just, it's, there's a, you know, it's like, we must do what's right because it's right. You know, not just, not because there's a percentage chance of something working out well or not, you know, there's like, let's be, this is an ethical, uh, existential dilemma. You know, how are we going to show up? How are we going to bring our best selves forward? So, and I happen to believe there's still many things that are worth doing. And as you say, we can land the Apollo, the damaged Apollo 13 module, uh, and, uh, you know, preserve a livable world, even if it's a hard one, even if it's not the one we were sort of promised mm -hmm. by, uh, you know, cowboy American capitalism. Right. Yeah, really. um, so but 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 Guy McPherson, his calculations, you know, for since you since you asked, uh, you know, feels like that's not really in the cards that we are, you know, we are really in a um, end game kind of scenario, even if it's going to play out over some number of, you know, generations. Um, most, almost every other scientist does not, you know, disagrees with that conclusion, but I thought it was interesting to interview him just because he was the extreme extreme. And, 
uh, you know, prognosis, right? The extremely, the most dire prognosis, the kind of the dark prince of, of climate predictions, you know? Um, and, and what, but even in his, I think what's, what was interesting about him, even though most, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of scientists disagree with his predictions was his attitude, which was uh, even believing that, right? Even believing that he chose an ethical path, right? He said, look, if we're, the, if we're the last of our species, let's be the best of our species. You know, if, mm. the, if, the, if, 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 if we're, if things are, if the, if the train is going off the cliff, you know, to use the metaphor I've said is, right. is inaccurate, but if the train is going off the cliff, then we should brace ourselves and help others on that train, brace themselves <sighs> for the fall. You know, even in that, in that extremis, you know, we should take care of one another. So and and he all and and you know and, and for him also that went down to the basic, you know, journalistic, uh, you know, fighting journalistic pr principle of um, afflicting is what is it? Uh, comfort the afflicted. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yeah, which is a you know basic. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but one of the great uh, voices of American journalism from the uh, Baltimore Sun. Uh, mm. You know that was his his formulation. Uh, oh, one of the great. Um, Yes, uh, scrappy journalist whose name I'm just spacing on because uh, my brain is that old. Um, uh, yeah. So was anyway, that Edward R. Murrow? Yes. No. 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 Early, earlier than that. Ah, but, well, um, anyway, I can look it up and, and, That's and, and all right. bring it up. We later. got lots of other stuff to talk yeah. about. So anyway, so yeah. even then, it's important to have that kind of an attitude, right? Because that just makes makes uh, makes for a more uh, yeah. You're, you're doing justice even even uh, in the end game scenario as it sort of plays out. But I don't, you know, I and most, most, most people don't think we're in an end game. We are in a battle for our lives and a battle for our future. And we need to enter into an emergency mindset uh, to to address it, like an existential challenge that we, in the way we rose to the challenge during World War II and, uh, yes. you know, just did everything. And, and, and I'll just note, uh, it's worth noting a news item uh, just happening in Congress today. Uh, in the last, I think yesterday, maybe today, maybe this morning, uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez right. in the House, and and a whole host of other uh, senators and uh, Congress people uh, have introduced uh, a, a call for uh, emergency, you know, addressing the climate emergency and inviting Biden to step into his potentially historic. Uh, Right. role as the first the very first climate president which he was doing a pretty damn good job on in the first two years but has has now sort of uh lost his way or has chosen to tack towards the center in a way that's what you have to destroy the planet in order to win the election no. uh, you know that's probably not a winning strategy overall <laughs> and uh, calling him to back away from things like the willow project in alaska and yes. opening up drilling in the gulf and the kinds of moves that he's made in the in this last year, so calling for an emergency mobilization uh, at the congressional level. So that's just been introduced in the last thirty six hours in yeah. Congress. And and he's uh, he's in a tough spot for sure. I mean, you know, yeah. politics and all, but uh, I, I he may still do some some good things. I, I think it's possible. Um, and there is, you know, as you described. The, the the rising of the seas 
basically, my understanding, I'm no scientist, anything, but uh, though I appreciate science, is that the problems have largely been caused by the global north. And the global south is paying a really high price. They don't have the, the money. They don't have the political power uh, to do something about it. But, you know, I, I, people from the north like to go to the global south because it's warmer and it's pretty. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if we can help other people, as you say, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, if, if you're on the Titanic and, and you're not going to be able to get off, you help other people get off. Uh, it, it's just, it's part yeah. of, of humanity and it, it can yeah. happen. So I, maybe this is an opportunity. Uh, I, I'm, I'm getting the sense that, that you believe it, it, it really is an opportunity to, to become uh, better uh, humans. As you said, there's an awakening going on, yes. right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes crisis it requires, uh, you know, a crisis for us to awake to things that have been broken for a long time. You know, things that we've, uh, where we have been having a, uh, you know, the, the in, you know, historic injustices that have been, you know, uh, pushed out of sight, out of mind, you know, in our society or ways we've been treating nature that is, you know, coming back to haunt us, you know. And so the, it is an opportunity and a, a moment of reckoning for us to uh, re-foot our way of being uh, in the world, you know, uh, change the relationships towards each other, uh, towards, uh, uh, and, and, and towards, uh, towards nature, you know? So, mm-hmm. and there's, there's millions, tens of millions, billions of people working on this, uh, you know, all over the world, you know? Um, That's right, right. From, from small, you know, from, from, you know, and, and, it, and, and not all of these people agree, you know, uh, Elon Musk is building a better, uh, you know, electric vehicle, and he doesn't agree with the people who are, you know, developing a, more of a regenerative uh, way of farming, you know, that kind of keeps carbon in the soil um, and keeps the earth as a, you know, doesn't just uh, uh, monocrop our way towards, yeah. um, towards, uh, you know, just, you know, kind of ruining our, you know, agri- they say that there's only like 40, you know, if we keep going with agriculture the way we are, there's like, 40 harvests left in the UK. You know, I just remember coming across that statistics, oh. for example. So, so, um, or look at the folks in uh, the folks in El Paso, for example, just to take one example of an, of a, of a solutionary, uh, ac- action. That's very inspiring to me. Uh, young activists, uh, primarily young activists of color. It's a very, you know, Latino, uh, uh, I don't know if it's majority Latino, but a very high proportion of Latinos in, in the El Paso and the El Paso region. So it's, this is an initiative called the, uh, the Climate Charter that is led by young activists of color but involving all uh, sectors of society to pass uh, a landmark piece of uh, like a citizen's initiative uh, that would establish like a, commit the city to 80 percent renewable by 2030, you know, appoint a chief resiliency officer. You know, mm-hmm. they're in a very mm-hmm. arid region of, of Texas that is you know, under threat of increasing drought. Um, and then do this one remarkable thing that is a game-changing level thing, which is establish water sovereignty. So it's sort of a no-brainer. Huh. Why doesn't this exist already? But like the water underneath the city limits of El Paso to declare that or you know uh, implement that uh, as being under the supervision, you know that they should be under the control, under the decision-making authority of the citizens of El Paso, right? We should control what happens to the water underneath our wow. city. That boom, uh, and that 
would do two things. One, a very powerful yes to a Uh resilient future, right? To declaring like water sovereignty, like uh, this is a water is life. So we should decide how best to use it, uh, you know, for drinking and for the other essential purposes for the residents of the city. But then it also is a very, very powerful no to the very, the greatest source of harm in this whole situation. Because at the moment, I think it's 40 billion gallons of that water is used by people outside the city, by the fossil fuel companies to frack the Permian Shale Basin, nearby, which is a nearby uh, huge uh, oil and gas reserve, the largest in the in the entire country, um, which not only pollutes the water table that the citizens of El Paso depend on for, for their livelihood in now and going forward, but also uh, helps to uh, bring out of the ground uh, the carbon sure. the greenhouse gas poisons that we can't afford to bring out anymore hmm. just so the biggest most powerful most you know sort of historically profit making in the last year right. uh, you know companies can make even more profits while their business model destroys the possibility <laughs> of a livable future for our children and grandchildren and utterly inexplicably their children and grandchildren right they it's not like they they're living on some other planet here it's not like they're breathing some other atmosphere so in any case it's a like that's a that's a inspiring initiative yes. that is led led by young people, led by citizens that will not only uh, help, you know, protect uh, the, the, what's essential to life for their for their community, but will uh, possibly stop what is uh, threatening all of us and uh, make it a big, bold. Yeah, mm-hmm. make it a better catastrophe, as is in the title of your book. And uh, one of the uh, people researched for your book, psychologist Jamie Hecht, suggests that our left brain, right brain split might help us navigate this crisis by providing us with access to the different truths of each hemisphere. I don't know about that stuff at all. Please say more. (laughs) Yeah, I know. He he was um, so fascinating person to interview. And I'll just note that that the entire, uh, you know, he's a, a psychiatrist, a psych- psychologist, as well as a student of uh, Greek tragedy and a poet and a painter. I mean, he's like was an extraordinary person to to interview and has been writing very eloquently uh, about this crisis with a particular angle to as a, you know, as a therapist to how to when you become aware, right, become aware of the things we're talking about, uh, as I did, you know, and, and caused me to write this book and like how to hold that awareness right how to hold the awareness of of this unfolding climate catastrophe at the same time as that our society is not rising it's currently our leadership is not rising to the challenge of addressing it how do we hold that right and the whole there's a like a vastly growing like a uh, uh, awareness or you know reckoning of the the um uh, psychotherapeutic community uh, as to mm. this, that there's a mental health crisis, yes. of, particularly among young people as they try to, nav- you know, not only yeah. reckon with what we're doing to the planet, but reckon with the fact that they're, they're feeling a massive sense of betrayal by uh, their elders, by those who are holding power uh, in not uh, caring for them, right? Being abandoned, being betrayed that, you know, their future is being, uh, not protected, yeah, right? Yeah. So um, the th- therapy, you know, therapists across the world, many different entities, and we're working with some of them in one of my other projects, uh, Climate uh, Psychologist Alliance, and and, and many other uh, entities are really trying to uh, understand 
uh, how to help people with this, you know, understand climate anxiety and how it plays out, climate trauma mm -hmm. and how that plays out and bringing people together to, 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 you know, to in group sessions, whether that's online or face to face to talk through that stuff mm -hmm. and kind of, um, you know, speak their bitterness, if you will. And then also, uh, you know, help each, you know, sort of take care of ourselves and each other in that process. Um, and, um, and then, yeah, so there's a, so, so Jamie Hecht is one of those, um, psychologists that, uh, you know, and I talked to him and he was sounding this alarm, uh, earlier than most, um, and talked about the collapse, you know, sort of collapse awareness and how to, how to handle that. And he thought the two hemispheres could, could help that where one was being honest about the facts and the situation and the science, you know, that's the, the, uh, the left brain, you know, right hand, left brain, right hand, you know, because the, the wires cross mm. from brain to brain to torso. So the, the, the left brain, right hand would, could, could grapple with the facts of the situation while the right brain, left hand uh, sort of hemisphere mm -hmm. could, you know, still find a way to be happy, you know, still find a way to, to feel the sweetness uh, of life, mm. you know, in uh, the way one person put it, turning new, new normals or even new abnormals into new beautifuls, you know, so there's a, there's a way yeah. to, so, yeah, so he was really, you know, he said, even even knowing the worst, there is a way for us to be happy. So that was one of his, the contradiction he was trying to navigate and bring his all his skills and training uh, to both for himself and for his patients and for the wider world. So, yeah. you know, there's a, you know, there's, you know, the book where I talk to eco philosophers and uh, organizers and healers and, you know, climate climate psychologists and people from various religious traditions, indigenous, uh, you know, Eastern Buddhist, um, as well as, you know, Tim de Christopher comes from more of a Christian and even evangelical tradition and went to Harvard Divinity School. So I'm drawing on all these, you know, all these different wisdom traditions through the people I interview and through my own reading and through my own, you know, my own uh, moral compass, if you will, uh -huh. um, my own stumblings, you know, through this. Basically, I'm bringing the reader along as I stumble through all of this. So it feels like a very human eye view of this. This is not like a book about, you know, with, it has enough of the science to sort of establish the situation, but this is not a book about crunching through policy and crunching through mm -hmm. the science and doom scrolling our way through everything. It is a, it is a book of, you know, exist like, you know, human, very human yes. centered, very human level reckoning uh, and sort of uh, pathfinding uh, through it. And it's very, it offers many options. It's not a book that sort of says, this is the way it sort of, it holds up the dilemmas. It sort of, allows people to recognize the, the debates that have been happening inside themselves or the situations they've gotten into or why are their friends not want to talk about this, you know, uh, right. Mm. Or whatever. And it, it, it offers a whole menu and repertoire of, of approaches. Some might be better for some people, some for others and uh, a kind of an honoring of the, of the contradictions and the dilemmas that are built into the situation and, you know, that we go through internally. So that's the, the book is very, embracing uh that way um yes uh yeah it has a lot of voices a lot of a lot of options a lot of pathways and it's um, so and even, yeah it, it's yeah. so easy to get you know incredibly discouraged you know sort of feel like a uh uh, in, in a uh, pinball machine, you know, a ball that's got no power and just like, huh, what's going on? I can't do anything. But this book here is is a bit different because it's not just, you know, what do we do uh, scientifically? It's, uh, you know, how we can uh, have some stability here and not feel like uh, 
powerless uh, uh, pinballs bouncing through here that, that, that we can still be human and, and our, discover some stuff about our humanity that can help us uh, uh, survive through this and not only survive, but actually do better. And uh, it, it's, it's, Dare I? It's it's a different perspective than so many other books about uh, about the climate uh, disaster that's coming. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's a way of how we can, and we need to think differently. My goodness, we need yeah. to think differently and act differently. Uh, and I just real quickly, the COVID pandemic, big thing in history. I I don't think we really understand its its impact quite yet but you you suggest it might be might be sort of a test run for how we respond uh what what, tell us about uh, what that revealed yeah well uh one way to think yes like um you know we're if we're (laughs) it was a catastrophe yes and we you know had you know and it was very immediate uh and it, it was very impactful at a very at a personal level and at a the global level, right? It was like across across the board, and wasn't something people could ignore, right? right? Even right. if even if you denied the you know that the vaccine, <laughs> you, if you disagree about the vaccines, it was it was happening. You know, people were people were dying. There were emergency health measures. Uh, you know, we needed to address. So 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 there was a lot of lessons across the board. Mm-hmm. One is, um, you know, on the on the negative side, uh, you know, we it kind of it split our society and there was a lot of conflict um, and miss, you know, not lack of unity. Right. So, and, 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 and in some ways a lack of the folks who were like, Hey, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to just flaunt everything. I don't care that there's some people who are more vulnerable, uh, you know, to this. Right. So there's some, some disregard. So there was some negative, mm, this, you know, if there's another catastrophe, say a climate driven one, then there could be some real, um, uh, uncaring behaviors and some real hard conflicts around what we need to do to address it, right? So that that was one part. But there was a lot of positive signs. I mean, there was a lot of the society coming together. There was a lot of people taking care of each other, uh, checking in on neighbors. Um, you know, there was a lot of people who were wearing, you know, you can argue about the science or not, but there's a lot of people wearing masks in solidarity with others, right? Not just because of their own uh, exposure, but because they realized that this was a, this was a, um, a way to care for those who couldn't afford to get sick, right? Um, you know, in public spaces. So there was a lesson there. Yeah, what we can do and, together as a yeah, society. And, we... Yeah, and it was also like the, the, you know, the we went into emergency mode, right? And so we went into emergency mode both to produce the vaccines, right? Both in a real high science tech kind of way. And we, it was an, you know, it was an extraordinary scientific feat and, hmm. and a feat of, organizing, you know, at a national global level, all of these resources for a purpose that was that was essential to to all. So that was an example of, of the kind of emergency mode we could go into around the climate. And we were able to also take care of those who couldn't pay their rent, you know, who were who, who, right. who were losing their jobs because of it. So we were able to find the resources to do that. Right. So it was it was an example of like there are billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars there if we decide something's important enough, if we decide we're in crisis, if we decide we need to approach it in an emergency way. And I think it helped pass some of the landmark legislation in Congress. So, so well, um, we've come I, to can, the end of our hour yeah, here, but yeah, uh, sure. the, the book is called I Want a Better Catastrophe. Uh, it's put out by New Society Publishers, getting some good reviews, I must say. Uh, I Want a Better okay. Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. Andrew Boyd, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, It's a 
It's a good good. It's a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure to chat with you. And I'll just mention there's a website oh, yes. uh, called bettercatastrophe.com. Ah, and readers good. can go go there, read parts of the book without buying it. You know, read it for free if you want to decide ah. before you buy it. And it has a lot of solutions and ways to plug into things and become bring your best self forward and become part of the part of the solution uh, on that website, bettercatastrophe.com. Thank, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.